It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Should Britain intervene in places like Syria, or are we no longer a great power? Do the young get a raw deal in modern Britain? And after the completion of a successful spending round, is the coalition going to last to the end of this parliament and be a success after all? Thanks very much for downloading this second edition of The Times' new Did You Read? My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of The Times' opinion pages, and each week I'll be gathering together some of the newspaper's great columnists to discuss the articles that they've been writing. Joining me today are David Aronovich, Matthew Paris and Alice Thompson. All of the articles that we're discussing can be read on our new Comment Central blog, which you can find at thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral, and that's available to all Times subscribers. Matthew, I want to start with you. You made a case really against intervention the other day, perhaps suggesting that Britain was no longer a world power and that people in Brazil don't get up wondering whether they should be involved in places like Syria. But is that really true? Britain still has one of the largest armies in the world, some of the best diplomatic services, arguably the best special uh, special forces, um, great intelligence services. We still are a big power, aren't we? I'm glad you characterized what I said as you did, because I wasn't making the case against anybody intervening in Syria. I could, but I wasn't. I was making the case against Britain intervening in Syria. Yes, we, we still have quite a big army. By 2020, it will be two-thirds the size that it was when we invaded Iraq, and we didn't do too well uh, even then, certainly not in, in Basra. But it's, still, but it's still a big force, though. And you look at other things like our aid budget. We're one of the biggest providers and projectors of soft power in the world. Another and waste of money. And in, in, in specialist areas like intelligence, diplomacy, special forces. Don't you think we still can punch above our weight? Oh, I hate that phrase, punch <laughs> above our weight. Yes, we can. You can always punch above your weight, but you're likely to get floored. And uh, we were, so we weren't quite flawed in Basra, but we made quite a mess of it. We more or less flawed in Helmand. And I don't see any reason why Britain should play some subsidiary role in a US intervention, which the US, if it wants to make, will make anyway and will succeed or fail on the basis of the United States' power, not ours. David, you took quite a different view in 
your column. You still regard Britain as a nation with a moral responsibility and the capacity to to intervene in world trouble spots. Uh, yes, I mean, not the capacity to intervene on its own in some way like Syria. I mean, what would we be talking about in any kind of intervention like that, unless it was actually something like Sierra Leone, would be um, any form of intervention, um, even if it was a soft power intervention, really, which was going to be uh, effective, would have to be undertaken with others. Um, so I've never been, so I'm both an Atlanticist and a pro-European. I want Britain to act and to use its influence in concert with other countries uh, as like-minded as we can be brought to be. And I do think we are wealthy enough um, as the sixth richest country in the world. Um, and um, we have the sufficient you know, tradition and the ability uh, to do it. Uh, but nevertheless, if Matthew's general other point was that we are limited in what we can do and whether we can act everywhere and so on, or whether we have, have a kind of hierarchy and series of priorities, that of course would be true. But he was making a rather different point. Um, and it was very characteristic of, of Matthew's own, uh, own view, which I respect uh, a great deal, which was essentially not just that you shouldn't do it because you shouldn't do it in the way of the Col- I think Colombia was one of the countries mm. that you mm. gave as, a, as an example, but that actually things would probably be worse if you did. Um, and I can understand a lot of the logic behind that, but I don't accept it. Alice, could things actually get worse in a place like Syria at the moment? We already have probably 100,000 people dead, millions of refugees. And that, of course, is a place where we see non-intervention, if you like, in evidence. Uh, my memoir is slightly selfish in that I think David Cameron's becoming too like Tony Blair. And you saw it at the G8 summit. He really likes the international stage. And it is a lot easier than being in, back in Britain. In Britain, you've got to cope with Nick Clegg moaning. You've got to cope with the coalition. You've got to try and sort out these very boring domestic issues like the NHS, which are intractable. And then you go abroad and, you know, you're the first to swim in the lake. That You're all competing over what you wear. You into the lake. Yes. And you're, <laughs> and you're, you're sort of a, an international stage figure. And when we interviewed Tony Blair, last week, Rachel Sylvester and I, you could see that what he'd really enjoyed was being on the international stage and that's what he did afterwards and that's what was fun and all his stories about that and David Cameron increasingly looks like that's what he wants to spend his prime ministership doing and actually I want to say to him don't, don't get so sucked into Syria and so sucked into all these big international issues that you're not going to focus and not do anything because in the end Tony Blair in his interview said this is what I wish I'd done and you know education, health he never did it because he was so obsessed by all his wars that's what he's going to be remembered for You're you're virtually making a a, a kind of fashion or style point and I think you may be right I I, I think world leaders we, we, we assume that they weigh up the pros and cons, the logic, the military dispositions and all the rest but what you're saying really is he just wants to be like somebody else. And um, you may be right. Maybe, maybe these are big motivations for world leaders. I think, it, I think it's worth remembering uh, as a kind of creative... Actually, I think there's something very true and, uh, and also that it is quite seductive in the way in which you suggest. Mm. I mean, after all, the one thing that world leaders aren't to each other is rude. Uh, you know, so you don't get equivalent of Prime Minister's question time with somebody baying at you uh, and so on. But it's worth remembering that the uh, Hutton report came through on the day that Tony Blair had to win the tuition fees vote in the Commons into, uh, back in 2004. Uh, I say that because... Blair never stopped doing things at home and he wasn't actually distracted by it. It is not necessarily the case that you have to be distracted by what you're doing abroad and nor is the fact that you might like it a sufficient argument for not doing things. Now, 
Interestingly, today, Ed Miliband is, uh, has been invited along to the, uh, to, 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 to the National Security Committee in order to listen to the arguments that will be being presented or the briefings that are being presented about Syria to the Prime Minister, presumably because they want him to share in what they're saying about their assessment of what's happening and what may happen there and what it's likely to mean for us, whether we intervene or not. Just on the the actual business of forecast, I just bet we don't do anything in the end. I think it's all talk. I, I don't think David Cameron's actually going to risk any serious British in, involvement. I don't think he'd get away with it in the, in the House of Commons. It isn't going to happen. It's all talk. Do you not admire um, David Cameron, though, a little bit on this, Matthew Paris, because there's no, all the opinion poll evidence is that any intervention in Syria would be incredibly unpopular. Large numbers of his already restless backbenchers don't want him to go anywhere near this. And yet he's there making the argument in a way that he doesn't always do for things that he believes in. There's there's something that is clearly motivating him here to act out of some high principle or perhaps because of the intelligence briefings that David has just described. Do you not find that compelling in some way? No, I find it mystifying. I don't know why he's doing it. <laughs> Just <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't square with my view of him, which is on the whole to keep out of things. Uh, it isn't popular, and I I don't know what's got into his head. I think you're right. It's the moral issue actually. I think he does like to take a moral stand, and there are very few issues in which he feels he can. I think gay marriage was one when he definitely thought it was dividing line. Normally, he's two on the one side on the other. Whereas with Syria, he feels he's actually managed to take a position, which is rare for him. And actually, I think his wife probably helped him to a certain extent as well. She's been very involved in it. And, and David, if, just on the terms of practical ratification by Parliament, constitutionally, the Prime Minister can just choose to arm the rebels without a parliamentary vote. But there will need to be a parliamentary vote, and there's every possibility he will lose it. No, they can, but um, arming the rebels is really beside the point. Um, uh, you could, I mean, uh, obviously what he wants to do is to bolster the non-jihadi opposition so that as the thing, you know, begins to move to whatever dreadful end game it is, then those people who we could at least do some kind of business with have some chance of succeeding. That's, that's, that, 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 that's the objective now. Now, that's got loads of different component bits to it. Um, but one of the most important at some point will have to be a decision about when it gets really critical about whether you do something about the Syrian heavy armour and air force. And we can't do that on our own. There's absolutely no question about that. It would absolutely have to be in concert with other people. The arms themselves, small point. Also from The Times... What comedian with a penchant for cheese, puns and obscure facts is set to host a panel show dedicated to the Ashes, the greatest sporting contest in the history of the universe? Is it A, the ghost of W.G. Grace, B, Mexican hottie and leg spinner Selma Hayek, or C, Andy Zaltzman? If you know the answer, then join me, Andy Zaltzman, for The Greatest Test, the best comedy quiz panel live show about the Ashes in England this summer. Probably guaranteed. Tickets at thetimes.co.uk slash greatest test. I want to move on to another topic um, now. Both myself and Matthew have written in the last couple of weeks about what we think is a raw deal for the young 
in Britain. You kicked the ball off uh, rolling first, Matthew, by talking about how you'd met someone at a conservative event, I think, who mm. talked about how uh, older people had so many benefits relative to the young. And then I talked uh, this week about the housing crisis, where actually it's going to take a new uh, first-time buyer 10 more years to save up for a deposit, three or four times longer than it used to be the case. Now, my understanding, Alice, is that you're not quite convinced that uh, the uh, young do get such a raw deal compared to the elderly. No, I think it's fascinating that Matthew's actually met someone young now, but if you meet a lot of young people, <laughs> they always whinge on about this, and they always say they have a terrible time. But actually, if I look, I'm right in the middle. I've got children and I've got parents. And if I look at my children and what kind of life they have and what kind of life their friends have and what they're doing and how many opportunities they have, and then I look at what my parents did, I actually I almost feel sort of teary-eyed about how much my parents did in their generation. And my dad worked fantastically hard. And occasionally he looks around now and he says, oh, it's, it's funny that some men don't work. He doesn't get you know, that, that he didn't have to. He's fantastically responsible. They didn't go on any holidays. They're all that side. They really didn't. I remember you know, when we were growing up, it was just a lot tougher for them. And we all quite like moaning now, and particularly my generation will all moan about you know, being working mothers or non-working mothers or not being able to buy cupcakes because, you know, benefits are going. And actually, what my mother did, she worked. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
incredibly hard. And I bet Matthew's mother did the same. She had lots of children too. Yes, but it it's, was, not, it's not my parents I'm talking about. It's more my generation. Well, that, um, you're not elderly, I'm afraid, Matthew. Uh, well, I'm you're 63. Well, you may say I'm not elderly, but I got a free bus pass. I travel well, by tube free issue. in London. I think heating you shouldn't allowances. have that. I think no. basically you're not old until you're sort of 70, 75 at least. I think Matthew, looking now, is much more my generation than we the elderly generation. We can't afford it. We just can't afford uh, to keep an entire generation of pensioners who are living longer and longer in the style to which pensioners have become accustomed. I know there are plenty of poor pensioners, but not all pensioners are poor. And what help we give to pensioners should be judged by their means, by their circumstances, and not just by the fact that they're over 65 or 70 or whatever. What's your view on this, David? Because um, David Willits, the uh, coalition minister, he wrote quite an important book that Matthew referred to in his article, The Pinch. And he said, if you look at the young, they don't get free tuition fees, houses, it's very hard to get onto their housing ladder. They have to pay off the debt, the borrowing, the government borrowing of the elder generation, and also clean up the environmental mess that the baby boomers left behind. Do you buy that thesis? Well, I, I buy some of it, certainly. I mean, um, uh, anecdotally, I feel a bit like Alice does, but evidentially, it seems to me that the evidence is on the side of you and Matthew, which is that um, uh, our generation, or let's say mine and Matthew's generation, roughly the baby boomer generation, has left a has has had quite a good life of it in terms of its own pension rights, in terms of what's happened to property uh, for us. I mean, I suppose we're talking broadly about you know those people who have who have done fairly well and so on, and our children are going to have a much more difficult time of it. They're going to have more difficult time in the jobs market. They're going to have a more difficult... They, they, they will have almost no pension rights at all, as far as I can see. And this is a really, really big long-term problem. Actually, our children, your children and mine, if I had any children, would probably be OK because we ha- we're people of reasonable means and, and we can help children. We can give them the loans to buy the houses and so can... Alice, but there's an awful lot of of, of people's children in Britain who don't have relatively well-off mums and dads. That's the real danger. That could be the beginning of a new age of inequality, really, because you have people who are helped to buy homes by the bank of mum and dad, as it's called. They get on a property market, and if we don't build enough houses, they've got an asset that grows wealthier and wealthier and wealth generates wealth. It's I was really struck by something I read on somebody's blog this week. He's an academic who's gone to live in a, in a village somewhere and he was talking about so shortly after having uh, gone there, the other people in the village got up a petition to stop there being any housing and he felt so sort of intimidated by the way in which they came around. He thought, well actually I don't particularly want houses there anyway so I shan't think about whether there should be houses mm. I'm just going to sign the petition and make them go away. I opened my account with Barclays Bank in Cambridge in 1969 simply because the students' union said we shouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) And we've mentioned bus passes, we've mentioned the free um, uh, sort of winter fuel allowance, but really this is about retirement age, isn't it? We need a. I think you actually have to just raise the retirement age and the bus pass and all those because actually. You two aren't old. I'm sorry. I know you're dying to be. They'll be delighted to be told they're not, not old. elderly. You are still in the middle years. You're, you know, you're, you've actually got another generation above you, and they are really having quite a tough time. And actually, a lot of them. Are, I think there are a few wealthy ones, but very few who actually have got the sort of cruises they're going on the whole time. And uh, you know, most of them have saved up and maybe go on one cruise or do one. Alice, have you ever been on a cruise? 
You have, I know. I've, I've now been, no, been on two. Let me tell you, let me tell you, there are people, it's actually cheaper in many ways to live on a cruise ship than it is to live in some parts of uh, Britain. And there are indeed people who do entirely this. I do this as purely as a journalistic exercise because it's interesting and so on. Um, there are a significant proportion of Britain's pensioners who have quite a lot of money, have quite a lot of it available and who are fairly well off. Now, um, I th- the question is whether or not they will be, there will be future generations who will be in that kind of a position. There are all kinds of reasons for this. There are generations of people who got heavy early redundancy payments out of industries that were effectively closing or when things were privatized, for instance, that gave a sort of big, big, a big boost to people's incomes at a particular point in time. Um, so all I would say is I think there is a problem and Tim recognises the problem, a large, large part of the problem of lying in the housing sector, um, which is that because of changes in households, not least as somebody recently said because of women divorcing their husbands fairly late and so on, we have a big demand for housing that's not met. Yeah. Well, I'm going to move the conversation on to our final topic and um, we've had the coalition, some people said it couldn't happen, but the coalition, George Osborne, Danny Alexander, have agreed another £11.5 billion of spending cuts. They're cutting more than Margaret Thatcher ever managed. Alice Thompson, is the coalition turning out to be a more successful enterprise? Is it proving to be more stable than some of us imagined? I think it will limp on to the end. I think one it's of those limping though at the moment is it's still agreeing. Some yes, we've had one week. Decisions. Yes, we've had one week when the economies worked and they worked together. But, but actually, the, if you think the, about the it, the whole of the last is not a small thing. This is the central no, problem, and, I think and they, they are will succeeding be remembered in it. by the economy. But I think on other issues, if you look at education or you look at quite a lot of the big issues, it has been fantastically difficult. If you look at constitutional reform for the Liberal Democrats, it's been a total disaster for them. So I don't think anyone would say it's been fantastically successful, particularly not after that wonderful speech that David Cameron gave, which is probably the best speech of his career about why he wanted to go into coalition and why it was going to be so fantastic. I don't think the British have warmed to coalition. I'm not sure they'd want to do it again. Um, I completely disagree with this. Um, I, uh, though I can see why people, particularly on the conservative side, think it. Trying to lose any kind of uh, my own uh, uh, tendencies, sort of pro-Labour tendencies in this, I think the coalition, as a coalition, has done remarkably well. I think it's done better than anybody expected. It's held together under circumstances that would have torn parties apart, let alone uh, coalitions. Uh, you gave the example of education, Alice. I mean, I was uh, interviewing Michael Gove, Education Secretary, um, last Friday. I cannot think of any substantial thing that he's tried to do that has been thwarted as a consequence. All he's had to do is do... GCSEs and all those different issues. No, no, he he had problems with the GCSEs anyway, which he was going to have to work with. The history curriculum is really not a problem of the Liberal Democrats. I mean, it genuinely isn't. It's a problem of being a really stupid history curriculum, which he's had to change. And I think he, I think he more or less, uh, uh, more or less said that. But but, but whatever it is, I mean, actually, the truth is that the Liberal Democrats have proved. We all said the Liberal Democrats will pull out of this. They've got so unpopular, they're going to pull out. They didn't. Uh, They were in it for the long haul and so on. There are sections of the Tories that don't like it, but actually. Um, whatever the British people in the end think, and of course they just won't like the government who's in power, but that's it. Um, I think it's worked. Overall, um, Matthew, do you think part of the reason why I think I, I agree with what David has just said, I think the Liberal Democrats have behaved on the whole as better coalition partners than some of the Tory backbenchers. Do you think part of the reason for that was that 
The Liberal Democrat MPs had that extensive consultation. They voted on the coalition agreement in the beginning, and Tory MPs were never part of the process in the same way. Is, no, is it something the, deeper? That, that, that's the argument of the Tory right, you know, that the party should have been properly consulted. You couldn't have consulted the party. There wasn't time. The reason Lib Dems have cooperated is they're the weaker party of the two and that any general election that they tried to precipitate would have been a disaster for them. So they have no choice but to hang on. But they have hung on and they've hung on, I think, pretty grittily. I always liked the coalition. I am a conservative. I love, like coalition. I like this one. I love the coalition. I think it's a brilliant idea. I always thought that it would uh, carry on to the end. I never thought it was going to break up, and I'm pleased to see that it isn't. Is it, Matthew, is this almost your? This is almost preferable to you than a, a conservative government, because in a sense you have these. Some of your conservative home friends. Yes. <laughs> keeps their fingers out of things. Yes, absolutely. You, you would rather have David Laws and Jeremy Brown and. Danny yes. Alexander being the balance of power Peter rather than Bone. Peter yeah, Bone yeah. and those, <laughs> those Tory MPs who put together that. Even for me, that manifesto was um, very odd uh, last week. That is your preference. Paul Goodman, what was it, as the, what are the, uh, as the uh, Bialystok and Bloom? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, that was a great <laughs> The political world. And, no, I mean, you, you slightly caricature my position, but as a kind of centre-centre-left conservative, I think it's no bad thing to have allies what in other parties. Conservative is how I see you, probably yes. than a centre-left yes. conservative. Yeah. Yeah, well, and what's our predictions? Is this coalition going to last Is into the next parliament? I'm beginning to think that's a real possibility. Give us a prediction. Alice, first. Well, it's one of those weird things you can't actually vote for, can you? So no. it's going to be very complicated, but I think it looks as if, and particularly as Ed Miliband looks so difficult to elect that you probably will end up with pretty much the same thing all over again. David? Um, uh, somebody tweeted the other day that it's better to consult the entrails of a goat than anything else about the... Uh, and I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely no prediction from me, except I think the chances are high that it will be a hung parliament one way or the other. But, but you do, Tim, put your finger on a, a problem, I think, that we now, now know about coalitions. We now know there may be another one. The Conservative Party knows there may be another one. How does the party influence its potential prime ministers, next prime minister after 2015, his negotiating stand. How, how, how can the party tell David Cameron what, he may or may, what deals he may or may not do? It's going to be interesting. That's probably a subject for a, another podcast. But I just want to end on a question that the nation has been thinking about for a long time, Alice. In your fantastic column last week, you talked about how the RSPCA had become detached from its uh, initial mission. And you wrote... I once spent a few days with caring RSPCA inspectors rescuing squirrels from trees. Now, um, some people in the uh, comment thread said, did you also rescue blackbirds from nests and rabbits from warrens? You have to explain to us what you were doing rescuing squirrels from trees. Well, we pretty much did, actually. But uh, the reason we had to rescue the squirrels is it got tangled up in a balloon and its string at the top of a tree. And they'd had 10 calls from very worried neighbours about the squirrel who didn't seem to be able to get down. We actually then tried to get the squirrel down. I volunteered to climb the tree, but it didn't work. So we had to get the fire brigade out, who came out. And then we discovered, actually, the no squirrel... No wonder we've got a deficit. <laughs> the squirrel a was resting, yes. A shotgun. And actually was fine and didn't need rescuing. But everyone had tried and everyone felt very good about it afterwards. Well, at least we finally have the answer to that. Great. You can eat squirrels. I've got a recipe book with a recipe for squirrels. That would be a better way of dealing with them. You've already upset all of our um, readers and listeners by take, wanting to take away their pen rights, um, Matthew, don't start talking about attention. That's uh, all we have uh, time for today. Uh, Thank you very much, David, Matthew and Alice. 
and also to my producer, Chris Skinner. Um, you can read all of the articles that we've discussed today on the Comment Central blog. I remind you of that address, thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral. And I'll be back next week with another fantastic selection of writing from The Times. Thanks for listening. Cheerio. 